Station 13 covers topics that may not be suitable for all listeners, such as death, homicide, body gore, and the paranormal. We also like to swear on occasion. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Station 13. Grab a glass of wine and put the kids to bed. This is DJ Void, signing back on. I'm glad to be reporting to you from the once-defunct Station 13 Broadcasting Studio. I was right. Everything is still here and it seems to be working just fine. Heck, even the soothsaying vines are still wrapped around the building, happily sleeping away. Unfortunately, one of the creatures of the woods did spot me, so I am stuck here until its glowing eyes leave from the distance. But that's okay. I don't mind being stuck in my old stomping grounds. Boy, I cannot express how happy I am to be back here with my old equipment. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any music, but maybe somebody will reach out to me one day. Now, I've managed to clean some of the station up in the day I've been here so far, and it even seems my little feline co-host is enjoying roaming this new environment. Oh, how I missed viewing the moons through the station's skylight, and the creepy ambiance the whole place has. I was even right about having an inside man looking out for me. My old co-host Eclipse left me a lovely written note in one of my coffee mugs. Did I mention the coffee maker still works? It's phenomenal. Anyway, the note welcomed me back and reminded me of some of this station's rules, which I might as well share with you now that I'll be out here on my own. Okay, here we go. Let's read the note. Void, welcome back to the broadcasting station. I figured you'd try and take over the airways again after being fired for a trivial incident. Honestly, who does Tom think he is? Anyways, if you haven't heard from him, I reached out to Garth to make sure you had at least someone on your side if you attempted to do this whole shebang all over again. I really do wish you the best on your endeavors, Void. Now it's been a handful of years since you've stepped foot here. I hope. So I figured I'd restate the rules and write them down for you so you don't have any issues. Number one. Make sure to miss the soothsaying vines within an hour of arriving and within 30 minutes prior to departure. It'll keep them asleep so you can get some work done. Number two, lock the door as soon as you are done doing so. Do not go outside or unlock it until the sense of dread in the air eases, as the blast doors seem to disturb the natural wildlife. You shouldn't have any issues leaving, however, provided you keep your wits about you. Number three, Turn on the neons and leave them on until you leave the building. They may look run down, but they do a pretty good job at discouraging large birds from landing on the satellite during a broadcast. Number four, make sure to leave any table scraps to the left of the building. It is not mandatory to provide any, but it keeps balance with nature if an offering is left at least once a visit. Number five, if you hear a knock at the door, do not acknowledge it. More than likely, it is the postman, Kevin, and by now, he should know where the mailbox is. Worst case scenario, it's simply best if you didn't try to peek through the window. Number six, if the soothsaying vines do wake up, it is imperative that you play music as soon as possible, as this will calm them down. If music is not accessible, they may become hostile. Oh, jeez, let's hope I get some music in here soon. Number seven, if you plan to spend the night at the station, make sure to turn the fog lights on before you head to the bunks. 
They were installed to keep our forest neighbors from banging on the walls throughout the night when employees were stuck because of flooding. Number eight. Now this rule is the most important. If you notice a creature following you to the station, do not unlock the doors or leave until you can no longer see the glow of its eyes through the frosted glass of the recording booth. This is the only reason they put windows in there in the first place, so don't be stupid and use them. I wish you the best. Eclipse. See, I knew somebody still cared for me even after I got canned because of the incident. Now I did some digging earlier and I found my old fan mailbox. I can't believe people actually used to write to me. It seems so far off now. However, while I was looking through ones I've already opened, I came across a few that arrived after we had moved stations that weren't. To be precise, I found three unopened envelopes, all sent from the same sender. I used to pride myself on always reading letters on air, and I believe today is the perfect time to pick that habit back up. Lots of people used to write to me about their family's history with the paranormal, or even just old recipes, so I'm kind of excited to see what these have in store for me. Let me start with the envelope stamped back the farthest. It seems this letter came in from a lovely Wisconsin native named Alan. Well, Alan, let's see what we're dealing with here, shall we? Dear Void, My name is Alan Mouse, and I've debated writing into your show for a while now. I didn't know if what I had to say was any less mundane than what you usually share from your other listeners, but my wife finally convinced me to write everything down anyways. I've wanted to share my family's tales from when this state was young for a long time, but never had the right opportunity. Now that I find myself in a home built on the same land these stories took place on, it makes even more sense for me to share them, even if just for my own comfort. Let's begin with my several greats grandmother Agnes. Agnes had a love of adventures, and when her family settled here in Wisconsin, that curiosity only grew more. This habit perturbed her parents quite a deal. They were hundreds of miles from their homeland and didn't quite have a grasp on the surroundings yet. One day, as Agnes was going about her usual wanderings past the homestead, her father decided to follow her. As he did so, he noticed her peculiar habits of staring at the ground and waving at the not-so-distant foothills. This was odd, and not something she ever did in front of her family. What was even more off-putting was the salamander she picked up along the way, holding it by its tail and not minding the fuss it was making. Her father continued to follow her until she came upon a ravine flowing through the woods, where she finally took a seat. The following is a recording from his journal that was founded in their home by my grandfather that has been paraphrased and translated to English. I don't know why I followed our dear Agnes that day. Maybe it's because despite her age of thirteen I was scared that she'd do something foolish. Unfortunately, my assumptions were correct. When Agnes finally stopped walking and settled down at the banks of a ravine nestled quietly in the woods, my heart relaxed only to be shocked back into a hearty rhythm by the beast I witnessed join her in her leisure. I don't know if I have the words to properly describe the thing I saw her present the salamander to, but I'd compare it to a demon from the Nine Hells. It had eight legs, four of which it had clutched to its upper body, fondling a mess of threads. Its eyes glowed a soft yellow as its fangs dripped a green ichor. I would compare this beast to a spider, but I feel I'd be doing them an injustice in the comparison. After I witnessed this, I slowly backed away lest it see me. I must go back there tonight to dispatch this foul creature, so that I know my children, especially my sweet Agnes, are safe. 
if i do not return to write in this journal i pray to the gods above that my family read this and know of the creature lurking in the woods so that they may avoid any fate which i have fallen to-night i shall grab a weapon and head out and with luck shall best the beast agnes's father wasn't a religious man so to read through the entry after everything else he had written struck fear into my heart for the first time what is more concerning however is the journal entry dated the same day found in agnes's diary here is her view on the matter pa followed me today he thinks he's sneaky but his footsteps are not quiet i really wish he hadn't as weaver doesn't like uninvited guests pa didn't even bring a gift and i think that upset weaver even more weaver told me coming into someone's house without a gift is incredibly rude especially if the guest is uninvited why did pa have to be so darn rude anyway pa just told us he's going hunting for deer tonight but i have a feeling that isn't true i wish i knew what to tell mama when he doesn't come back but i don't think i'll have the words i've seen weaver take down creatures much larger than deer before and i don't think pa has a chance even with his weapons i wish there was anything i could say to keep him home with us but at this point i don't think that's an option i can see the fear in his eyes clear as day up until this point in agnes's journal she had written quite a bit about this creature she deemed weaver she herself compares it to a large spider-like creature very similar to her father's account however she also includes some information that i wish i hadn't read apparently weaver liked to create dolls oftentimes he would show his creations to her and she had compared their likeness to some of her far-off neighbors i don't think she put two and two together until after the entry above that night her father did go off into the woods to hunt and as the sun rose the next morning his absence was felt throughout her family her brothers went to scout the woods and her mother stood by the stove in silence running her hands over his old work clothes agnes's father was nowhere to be found her mother tried to rationalize it by saying a bear must have taken him but she knew better this stopped agnes from going into the woods for a time her mother too scared of the bear lingering and her brothers now the men of the house outright refusing her as things settled down and they got back into the routine of running their small farm their mother started claiming to see pa on the edge of the woods the boys blew it off as a delusion of a widower and went about their business but agnes decided to keep an eye on the forest's edge around dusk that night is when agnes spotted it the bloated corpse of her father hanging from lines of thread when her mother saw it took seconds for her to go into a fit crying and screaming at the woods trying to force her way out of the house to go to him agnes tried with all her might to tell her mother that he was gone and the things at the edge of the woods was just a puppet a foul torture instrument to lure her into the woods but her mother refused to listen and with her strength broke free of a now fourteen-year-old agnes's grip and threw herself into the clutches of the forest her brothers assumed their mother lost herself to her grief and they'd be half right that would be the final time agnes saw weaver or any semblance of him during her youth unfortunately that does not mean this story is over through the journals of her children found in the cellar of the home i have managed to piece together even more of her story it seems weaver was not done with agnes for when she reached the age of thirty-five and had three children of her own her husband died while her family struggled to cope with the burden of a home with no husband or father that's when she saw it 
her husband standing at the edge of the woods waving at her. But no, that wasn't him. It had his face and his hair, but its eyes oozed the ichor of the creature of the woods, and the longer she stared, the easier she could see the thread holding him up in the trees. According to her sons, this threw her into a rage. They didn't know what she was looking at, but they re recounted that she screamed at the top of her lungs in anger and stormed her way out of the house, grabbing a blazing stick on her warpath. She threw the strick straight into the driest patch of the woods she could see, and with that she watched the whole slice of forest engulfed in flames. Her journal goes into detail of watching her own husband's body go up in smoke, but I can hardly stomach that part. Throughout the rest of the journals, we managed to find several mentions of the bodies of loved ones popping up at the edge of the forest, some seeing them as themselves and the journals cutting off there, implying that those family members fell to grief, while some saw the bloat and the rot and moved to greener pastures. Even my grandfather mentioned seeing my grandmother out there from the back patio, beckoning him to the woods, but by then his body was far too frail to make the distance. With my grandfather's passing, the house and land got passed down to me and my wife, along with the journals recounting its history. My father made sure to tell me of this story before we decided to try and make this our home instead of our tiny studio apartment. For now, that's all there is to the story, though I'll be sure to update you if Weaver returns. I know you have a great love for things that make this world less mundane. I love your show, and I hope to keep listening for many years to come, as it sets my heart at ease to know my family is not alone, and much worse things could be happening. Keep up the good work, Alan Mouse. Well, that was the first letter. I'd call it concerning, but compared to some, this is a walk in the park. Or a walk in a cemetery, whichever fits your vibe. Anyway, let's dive headfirst into the second one while we're on a roll. Alright, Alan, what you got for me? Dear Void, I didn't think I'd be writing to you less than a full month later, especially now that you're off the air. Writing my family story down was quite cathartic, so I figured I'd write to you anyway, because things have taken a turn. My wife is currently staying in a hotel a couple of hours north while we browse houses in the more normal area of Wisconsin. Honestly, we'd both rather deal with the hodag than the horrors we witnessed these last few weeks. I've returned back to the house to gather anything we missed the first go-around and remembered the first letter I wrote where I promised updates. Well, here is your update letter, complete with things I'd never actually say out loud. Two days after I posted my letter to you, I saw something on the edge of the woods. I didn't think much of it until I saw it again a day later while I was trying to install new fencing. It was exactly like Agnes had described in her journals. A large humanoid spider using its arms to weave thread and shove dead leaves in two. A husk of a human being. I won't lie, I tried my best to not be seen, but I ran as fast as my feet could carry me back to the house. It was only hours later that I saw the body standing out in the woods. Weaver's eyes were as bright as Agnes claimed they were in the background. At that moment, I was glad I could see the strings that had my uncle hung up in the woods. I can't even perceive how this creature got a hold of his body. I was told he died a few years ago when he went into the bull's pasture drunk as a skunk. I was also under the impression he was buried in the family cemetery a few miles away. That went on for a couple of days. I made sure to keep my wife from seeing and explain to her the situation. 
This is when she admitted to me that she had taken a pregnancy test that morning. She had been getting sick quite frequently, and we had assumed it was her allergies. Unfortunately, that was not the case. My wife is six weeks pregnant. I don't know if this is what prompted Weaver's resurgence, but this is what made us decide to move. We started packing boxes almost immediately, and the forest became a symphony of unsettling noises as we did so. I listed the house on the market at a lower than value just to pray to the gods and the moons above that it sells. At this point, I'm unsure of what to do. While writing this, I took a peek out the window, and it has gotten worse. A whole menagerie of corpses stands along the tree line. Some bodies fall into rot, and some simply skeletons with withered clothing. I took some advice from the journals and threw a chicken into the woods, but I believe this will only be a temporary reprieve. Is it better to just burn the whole thing down? I could sell the land for development and at least make a little for a new life. Writing this down has helped a lot. Thank you, Void. Alan Mouse Well, Alan, I hope you're still with us today, but I guess I do have a whole third letter here to read and find just that out. But first, let's take a quick break for commercials. I hope everyone is enjoying their time spent with Station 13, but now it is time to give way to those that make this possible. Today we are highlighting Lyric Dimmig of Lapcat Creations. This lovely humanoid made the podcast art and the intro tune. If you like their work or would like to view other pieces they have for sale, including some very cute knit items, check out their website, lapcatcreations.square.site. That's L-A-P hyphen C-A-T hyphen C-R-E-A-T-I-O-N-S dot square dot site. Would you like your horror story to be featured on Station 13? Or maybe your own favorite local cryptid? What about your newest music? Well, head over to thestation13.com. That's T-H-E-S-T-A-T-I-O-N 13.com. We'll see you there. All right, now, let's see what the final update is from Alan. However, I will note this letter is addressed from a Charlotte mouse, who I'm desperately hoping is Alan's wife and not some dead puppeted relative. Let's see where this train ride takes us, folks. Dear Void, my name is Charlotte Mouse. I'm the wife of Alan Mouse, the same Alan that has posted you two times previously. I understand you're off the air now, but I hope these letters reach you. Your show brought great comfort to my husband, and I'd find him listening to it when he was having a rough day. I gave it a shot myself a few times, and the chemistry between you and Eclipse was lovely to listen to. I know this letter may scare you, as it's usually my husband doing the writing, but since he wrote the last letter over a year ago, I gave birth to a beautiful baby girl. Alan is doing wonderfully, and we've settled into Upper Wisconsin. The monsters in this backyard are a lot less troublesome and easier to sway with raw meat. I just wanted to write to you about what finally happened to that old farmhouse and to the creature my husband's family called Weaver. The house stayed on the market for around three months before someone brave enough put in an offer. It was below market value, but at that point we would sell to anyone fully aware of the risk. My husband had sat the prospective buyers down and explained everything to them as easily as he could. 
Remarkably, this didn't scare them right out of the house. They informed us that they actually planned to remove all of the trees on the property other than the ones closest to the actual house. Apparently, they had dealt with a creature sim of similar habits in their home state of Montana. It was a relief to hear that they knew what they were messing with, and we happily handed over the keys to them. However, about a month later is when the phone calls came in. Apparently, the husband had gone out into the woods to mark the trees for removal and never came back. We tried to ignore these calls as we had done our best to warn the buyers about Weaver. That's when the phone calls became more frantic. The wife, Mrs. Baker, was calling nearly nightly about seeing Mr. Baker's body hung up from the trees. It seems Weaver was not too keen on making this one a part of his collection of dolls. Alan couldn't let this happen any longer, so he drove back down. We told Mrs. Baker to stay up at a friend of ours house who was more than willing to take her in. That night, when he arrived at the property, he gave me a call and told me he loved me before doing something that could backfire on him terribly. My husband set the home, the cellar, and the forest on fire. The whole situation reached the news, and the fire burned for two days straight. Luckily, some of Alan's family friends were firefighters, so he was able to get them to help prevent the spread. In Alan's words, the entire time the forest was ablaze, you could hear an eerie, high-pitched screaming, that of a child mixed with an animal. He confessed to me that Agnes had figured this out long ago. Weaver was weak to fire, and not a fan of water. If her perimeter could be made with water, it would be essentially trapped to perish in the blaze of the forest. When the fire had stopped, Alan recruited some friends to scour the woods for any remaining skeletals to give him and any others affected by this monster some peace of mind. Several bodies were found and identified to the best of their abilities. I drove down the following day after leaving our daughter with my sister. The whole land lay covered in ash and the trees were barren of leaves. You could feel the change in the air. The whole place felt a whole lot calmer. Mrs. Baker even visited and thanked my husband. He made sure to find her husband's remains so she may mourn him properly. And that's when she shared with us that she was also with child and he would be always a part of her. That itself made too many things click. Luckily, the Wisconsin Department of Paranormal and Cryptid Activity, or the WDPCA, paid to have the house rebuilt on the land for her after hearing of what had transpired. She'll be living quite comfortably now, I hope. Thankfully, that's all I have to share with you. Alan is currently asleep in the nursery as our little soul naps. I told him I'd provide the final update because he's been too preoccupied with writing up his family's history to have it published. Thank you for providing people with this outlet, and I hope to one day see you return to the air with your quirky aspect on life. I wish you nothing but the best, Charlotte Mouse. This is Garth Strongwater coming to you with an urgent public service announcement. Do not make eye contact with the trees. Do not make eye contact with the trees. There are things lurking in the woods better left unseen. Do not make eye contact with the trees. Whoa, whoa, whoa. One of the soothsaying vines just decided we needed a little wake-me-up before I started crying. A little baby named Soul? That is the cutest shit I have ever heard. I really hope that baby grows up to be a strong, lovely woman. 
Thank you so much, Charlotte, for your kind words, and I really hope my show can find you again. Geez, that was quite a nail-biter at some points. I'm really glad Eclipse made sure my mail remained safe despite everyone leaving the station in such a hurry. It'd be such a shame if these got lost. Now I promised every one of you I'd share the cryptids that call my state home, so I plan to keep that rolling. This week, I put together a little something about Devil's Lake and its inhabitants. But first, let's head over to the news. Hello, fellow meat sacks. I'm Garth Strongwater, and welcome back to another news segment. A giant talking bird has been reported to have flown over Gotham, Wisconsin earlier this afternoon. The bird landed in the town square, insulted several passers-by in oddly specific ways, then flew directly into the suns. I'm assuming that there will be no further updates since our feathered frenemy has been deep-fried by the dual sky-fire, but you never know. In other news, the creature outside my window has developed a sort of rash on one of its many, many nostrils. I am unsure what the creature's skin is made of, but I feel the need to try to help. If any of you have suggestions for otherworldly skin cream, please let me know. That about does it for today. All of the other stories bored me. Back to you, Void! Well, I hope that bird became fried chicken. It's so rude to insult people, especially with such touchy subjects. You know, I think this bird showed up at my high school reunion one year. I remember hearing someone specifically being insulted about their bad taste and color combos before a loud squawk. It's also interesting to hear news out of Gotham. Usually that town is pretty chill. Actually, it was ranked number one on the list of towns with the least cryptids or paranormal activity by the WDPCA. Oh, and Garth, I'd definitely start with trying some eczema cream. You never know, it may actually help. Just make sure it doesn't try and take your hand off in the process. Now, I promised you a little report on the Devil's Lake, so let's hop to it. Here's a little fun fact about your host here, but I've actually been to the Devil's Lake. The sense of unease was quite addicting. Now I am specifically talking of the brackish waters of the Devil's Lake located in Baraboo, Wisconsin. This wonderful little vacation spot was carved out by the glaciers eons ago, and is surrounded by beautiful hills. Of course, if my flowery language doesn't give it away, this lake isn't as peaceful or as relaxing as many claim. You see, there are several creatures and ghouls that call this lake home, and I figured I'd bring a few of them to the forefront. The oldest known cryptid to haunt the waters of Devil's Lake was none other than what used to be described as a kraken a tentacled beast larger than any other. This creature's existence was first noted by a Native American chief who had sent a hunting party to find food among the lush lands and waters. It is said that as they slipped the canoe into the water and began their expedition, the vessel was quickly capsized by thrashing tentacles, pulling the men beneath the brackish waters. While there would be no survivors, the screams of the party did alert fellow tribesmen near the shoreline, who rushed over only to see the beast wrestling the canoe under the full moon. This prompted the tribe to begin delivering yearly offerings to the lake, not only to grieve the loss of their kin, but to appease the beast beneath the surface. While there is no longer animal sacrifice held on the shores of Devil's Lake, people do still gather to uphold this tradition. It is believed that because of this, the kraken-like creature of the lake would go on to be compared to the likes of the Oklahoma octopus. I have never personally seen this creature in the Devil's Lake, but I have seen plenty of oddities there. My mother took me there once when I was but a little babe with big dreams. I think we were there for a birthday party or something. Anyway, I remember feeling like my skin was crawling and eyes were burrowing into the back of my skull. 
Of course, the more I think of it, the more likely it is that the eyes belong to a human nightmare over a cryptic one. This doesn't discount all my stories, however. With the melting pot of cultures, Wisconsin holds the strangest amount of ghouls and oddities. And by this, I mean the things I've seen on the cliffs or surrounding the water could make your elderly mother jump out of her skin. I swear I saw an old crone once beckoning to me from the rock face. Her skin hung on her like she was only bone. Anyway, back to the actual plot here. If one water-dwelling creature wasn't enough, it is said that there are actually two aquatic friends living in Devil's Lake. When Christian missionaries arrived in my lovely state, they were greeted by members of the Nakota tribe and warned of another great monster. It is said that during a drought, a fish-like monster could be seen thrashing about on an island created by the receding waters. It is said that while the tribesmen were filled with the, both awe and terror, not a single one would approach the beast. They would call this beast Hakua, and believed it to be an evil spirit that touching it or approaching it would earn its ire. A lot of the creatures of Devil's Lake come from old Native American tales, which I feel would be disrespectful to speak of without the proper guidance. Things like the thunderbirds of the skies and great serpents will be discussed down the line when I can find someone knowledgeable on the topic. This land belonged to them long before it did any of my family, and I will do everything in my power to lift their stories up when I have someone willing to share them. If you or someone you know is native to this land and would like to discuss this with me on air, please reach out on the station's website linked in the description. This offer is not exclusive to those living in Wisconsin either. I will happily cover any legend from anywhere in the world. Now, the two lake monsters above may not be the only thing haunting the waters, but there are also still creatures that are said to roam the forests around the Devil's Lake as well. The most notable one being a carcass that washed up on shore around March 4, 1950. A local marshal's daughter, Mary Bell Allum, witnessed this beast claiming it had the body of a cow, nine tails, and hair all over its body and legs. They estimated this creature to be roughly a thousand pounds and 22 feet long in size. This creature was dubbed Old Harry, but alas, it was never actually identified as any known animal. With Old Harry unidentified, it's not so far-fetched as to ask ourselves if that was the monster of Devil's Lake. Other notable paranormals making themselves known at Devil's Lake include the likes of Bigfoot, who campers claim to see skulking around their tents in the dead of night and hiding behind trees along hiking trails. Along with him, there's also a chance that you could see a ghostly form of an elephant, probably because Baraboo has some rich circus history. Reports also mention that on new moons the park gives off a sort of resonance, stirring unease among campers and the animals alike. On those nights, it is not uncommon to hear screams echoing off the rocks in every which direction. Some even say those nights are the best for ghost watching, the most reported ghosts being two children playing hide and seek. I've actually spent the night out in the area on a new moon. Hearing giggling outside of your tent at 3am is quite unnerving. I also believe I have a few older letters from campers in the area stashed away in my fan mail. I'll have to dig them out and reread them for everyone new to our station. With that very short report over with, I think I might as well break out one more story for you all tonight, just to make listening a little more worthwhile. Of course, don't expect this every time, but I'm just a little too darn excited to be back here at my old desk in my old comfy chair. This story is a little different to the few I've read already, because this one isn't a write-in or a note found around my lousy apartment. 
You see, when I was a kid, there was a terrifying legend that went around, one of true misfortune. It revolved around a little girl and her desire to eat anything she could get her hands on. Ironically, this is not the tale of the old lady who ate a fly, but so much stranger. Anyway, on to the tale. Once, there was a little girl named Norma. She was no different than the average child her age, other than her ferocious appetite. Now, little Norma knew better than to eat what was inedible, so she simply continued to eat her family out of house and home. When that simply wouldn't fill her up, she begged her papa to butcher a cow. Well, her father was weak, and so that same night he fed her the entirety of what used to be their cow. That didn't fill up little Norma either, so she cried and cried until he fed her another. By the following week, little Norma's family no longer had any cows, so her father began to butcher the pigs. When the pigs were gone, her father moved on to the poultry. After a full month of feeding little Norma every animal on their farm, down to the herders, the mousers, and even the rats, they were left with nothing. They tried to sate her with whatever they had left in the house, but due to the lack of livestock, the cabinets and pantry were running dry. It took two days, only two days, until Norma developed a glint in her eyes and looked up to her papa with the largest puppy dog eyes she could muster, and in the sweetest, most honeyed little girl voice she could muster, she said, Papa, can I eat Grandma? This threw her father aback at the mere suggestion. With Norma's tummy growing louder and louder, and her mouth watering to the point of drool, he relented. That night, Papa took Grandma into the barn. You may be asking yourself why her mother never stepped in. The unfortunate truth of it is that she had passed when Norma was even littler than she was now. Her papa walked in on them one night while little baby Norma was breastfeeding to see his beloved baby daughter sticking out of his wife's ribcage, devouring the flesh that refused to feed her fast enough. Norma's father was no longer a stranger to his daughter's hunger now, even as it grew relentless, not after what he had witnessed. So that night, little Norma ate Grandma. Once she was done with Grandma, she looked at him again and asked for more. When her papa said no more, she began demanding. When her papa finally stood up against her demands, she began screaming, a relentless scream that would shatter even the toughest of glass. That night, little Norma ate her papa. When little Norma finished the meal, she began to scour the house for anyone or anything else. But unfortunately, it was empty. Norma had nothing left to eat, so she set off to find more. First she ate the neighbor's cows, then their pigs and poultry, and finally her neighbors. While Norma was going about her day and eating everyone out of house and home, a party formed. A party to lure Norma into the woods specifically into a cave that dropped down into a large pit and gave no chance of escape. To lure her there, they set up a fire and a feast directly at its entrance, and just as expected, up pranced little Norma in her Sunday best, drenched in blood. "'May I have some?' she asked with her best puppy-dog eyes. "'Take your fill and sit inside the cave. It's about to storm.' We should get you out of this weather, choked out one of the men. 
For you see, standing there wasn't a bright-faced, cheery-eyed child of nine, but a grim-looking creature from nightmares. Her hair, once brilliant and blonde, now ash and falling out at the root. Her eyes clouded over by a haze, her nails longer than that of a predatory cat, and her stomach grotesquely opened to the world, organs hanging down to her knees. However, despite her looks, little Norma complied and took a plate piled with food as politely as she could and walked off into the cave, followed by an eerie thump as she fell off the edge into the pit. The men began to cheer and cry in relief until they heard her wailing, the sounds of a girl of nine screaming and blubbering in pain. A few men lost their wits and fell into the pit themselves trying to comfort her, the only thing awaiting them being her gnashing teeth. To this day, it's rumored that Norma is still alive, waiting at the bottom of the pit for unsuspecting hikers and wild animals to fall in. On some rainy days, it's said that you can even hear her crying out in pain in hopes to lure just one more person to fuel her appetite. That was a story that my mother and several others in the area would tell their children. However, as an adult, it seems quite ridiculous. There are many nightmarish creatures in our world, but not a single one can live with an exploded stomach. Also, wouldn't the first cow have pushed her over the edge? Not to mention the fact that most would have their child locked away if they killed their own mother in such a gruesome fashion. Honestly, the story probably originated as a way to keep children out of the weeping woods. I mean, those woods do some strange shit to people's brains. They don't just emit a sound of hurt children 24-7. I had a friend that thought they had the whole world figured out by 13, and went into those woods without a string to guide them back. Poor dude got lost out there for like two weeks, claimed he lived off the local fauna or something. Alright folks, it looks like the glowing eyes have finally faded into the woods. I'm gonna mist the vines and see if I can sneak my fluffy co-host out of here. Remember to take everything with a pinch of salt and a handful over your shoulder. By the way... It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? This is DJ Void, signing off. creations for not only designing the channel icon and opening theme music, but also being the voice of the wonderful Garth Strongwater. Hope you all enjoyed your time with Station 13, and we hope to see you alive and well next time.